welcome back welcome back to the podcast how are you guys doing it's me amaka and you are listening to the bibliotherapy for black women podcast hosted by yours truly i hope everyone out there listening to this episode is doing well um to paint a picture for you guys as to where i am right now in the park I think this has proven to be the best situation for me right now. It's quiet. It's calm. um, Very few distractions. I am around trees and nature. There is a road with, you know, cars passing by like a little bit of a ways away. But um, as far as environments go for good recording spaces this is working out so we're gonna keep going until we can't um yeah I hope everyone's doing well and if things are tough right now I'm sending love and positive vibes your way How am I doing? I took off work yesterday. Yesterday was Friday. It's Saturday morning at about nine-ish that I'm recording. I usually work Tuesdays to Fridays and I took yesterday off, which I think um, was much needed for me. I just had a lot of stuff to do and I felt like I didn't have enough time and I decided to take a personal day and I do not regret it. Um, my job is the type where even with personal time off, you may still need to address some work related stuff. So there is actually a patient that I needed to see rather urgently, but thankfully It was a short session and the needs were not too complicated. So I was I was able to address them pretty quickly. And then I was able to kind of go about with my day. Swimming is going good, going well. Um, My last class a few days ago, we went from kind of the open water side of the pool to the lane side. So we actually um, did some pretty intense lane work. Like I said, my instructor is great. Really couldn't ask for a better teacher, but he does not play. (laughs) So he will instruct me and then tell me to do it. And his techniques that he teaches me are really, really helpful. So it's it's coming together. And I was able to swim from one end of the pool to the other at my last class, which is a huge accomplishment for me. And I'm very proud. <laughs> I was so exhausted by the end of the class because swimming, swimming can wear you out. Um, 
but yeah i was i was very happy about that um there is progress there is progress and it's the fourth class so i think I I know I mentioned in maybe like the last episode or two episodes ago that I was kind of worried I wouldn't be able to swim by the time the classes were over, but I'm feeling a lot better now. Um, Being at that halfway point, I have four classes left and kind of where I am in terms of progress. I think having four more classes is just the right amount of time to continue working on the technique and perfecting it and you know essentially being able to swim and call myself a swimmer um the practices that I've been able to do in between classes help as well um because they're once a week and I feel like seven days in between being in the water is a little too long especially as like a beginner because practice is key like you need to be in the water for your muscles and your brain to really rewire in a way that it needs to so that it knows what to do with your limbs and is able to kind of start working together more naturally so I can start swimming without really having thinking too much without having to think too much so yeah, it's it's coming along and I am very happy about that. So I think I'm going to dive into the topic of this episode. I'm sure you guys have seen it. Um, in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May, I wanted to, I did not want this month to pass without kind of shedding, putting a spotlight on mental health in more of a clinical sense. I did this with my major depressive disorder episode, kind of laying out more clinical presentations of what depression can look like. And I have been wanting to do an episode on anxiety for a while. So I decided to have that be the main topic for today. And, you know, it really is timely, I think, when it comes to the significance of the month and just how ubiquitous anxiety is um, amongst, you know, people because life can be stressful and it can get to a point where you are anxious on a regular basis, anxious about certain things. Anxiety is oftentimes rooted in trauma, um, past experiences. And I think especially considering who this podcast is for in my mind, I want those of you listening to have a better idea of what anxiety may look like. You know, everybody is different and anxiety does not present the same way in everyone. But 
there are certain symptoms where if you feel like you've been going through this, but you maybe brushed it off or did not really have time to think about it more in depth, maybe what I discussed today will have you think a little bit deeper into past experiences and maybe you might be able to connect some dots and realize that, huh, maybe I've been dealing with this and um, I might need to or I might want to look into it further, get some help, some support, therapy, what have you. So the word anxiety is kind of like a catch-all term in my opinion nowadays if there's an inconvenience it can range anywhere from like a minor inconvenience to like a life-altering traumatic event to where folks use the term I'm anxious I have anxiety to describe what they're feeling but there are different types of anxiety And I'm going to talk about five different types in this episode. I'm going to start with panic disorder. Then I'm going to talk about agoraphobia. And then specific phobia, social anxiety disorder, and then generalized anxiety disorder. But before I do, I want to talk a little bit about how anxiety can come about. There are several different factors that can contribute to varying levels of anxiety. Um, There are people that aren't anxious at all, that don't live with anxiety at all. There are people that kind of like have a baseline, mild level of anxiousness. Not every day, but, you know, kind of depending on what they're dealing with. There are people that have more moderate levels and then there are people that have very high levels of anxiety to where they might need to be involved in regular therapy or need um, to be on a medication regimen. But all in all, anxiety can be impacted by genetics. Um, A family history of anxiety can impact someone's risk or likelihood of developing it. A person's level of stress in their life can definitely impact their level of anxiety, what they're actively dealing with on a day-to-day basis, um, whether they have any positive or quote-unquote negative coping mechanisms. And there are some mechanisms that can be detrimental to health overall, but I think I say quote-unquote negative because coping mechanisms just vary from person to person. And there are some that are great for others that may not work for some people. And the the type of environment that a person lives in or finds themselves in on a regular basis, perhaps as a job that they're not too happy to be in or maybe a tumultuous family situation Um, environment plays a big part in the level of anxiety that you might be dealing with so in a nutshell 
And this does not include everything, but these are just some big things that can impact it. Definitely your family history can impact the likelihood of developing anxiety. Your level of stress on a regular basis can impact your level of anxiety and the environment that you are in on a more regular basis can impact your level of anxiety. Now, I want to go back a little bit and kind of just talk about anxiety as a function of the human body. Anxiety itself is not bad. Anxiety can be a form of your body telling you something is wrong and it needs to be fixed. It has a role. It has a function. But like many, many other things in life, if it goes into overdrive or if it is employed by the body sending you messages like almost nonstop, it can get to a point of being really detrimental. So anxiety as a human experience is normal and it's most commonly described as a diffuse, unpleasant, vague sense of apprehension. So anxiety can be beneficial to a degree, like I said, it can be motivating, it can make you take action on things that need to be addressed. Some context to where this might help clarify it is like if you have an exam coming up if you're a student and you have a test and you haven't studied and you maybe have like a few days left anxiety can motivate you to get to studying if you are taking a trip and you've never been to that place before perhaps it's a new country Having a little bit of anxiety could make you do some research and do your best to prepare and, you know, have a plan B if things, you know, go, don't go the way you anticipate. In, in the situation where perhaps you book a flight, anxiety can have you make sure that you, you know, pack at a decent time before leaving, that you plan ahead when you're going to leave for the airport so that you have the best chance to not miss your flight. So anxiety can be a functional tool for you. But like I said, it can get to a point where it is no longer within that realm of balance. And it just kind of goes off the rails to the point where it impacts how you're able to live your everyday life. So in terms of how anxiety can feel in the body, it's going to vary from person to person. Um, Because a theme for this episode that I want to make sure is clear is that it's going to not, it's not going to be the same for everybody. Just as we are different as people, anxiety can present differently. But in general, there are some symptoms where if you are experiencing this, it's not out of the realm of possibility that you are experiencing anxiety in that moment. So if you have a headache, if you start to sweat, if your heart starts to race, if your chest starts to feel tight, if you have mild stomach discomfort, if you start to feel restless, like you can't sit 
for too long or you can't stand for too long. Any and all of those symptoms, or at least having like two or three of those symptoms at once can point to you potentially having some feelings of anxiety or are going through an anxiety episode. Anxiety can also impact your ability to concentrate on fo- and focus on tasks. And it, it can impact your ability to solve problems sometimes if it's at a level where, you know, it can't be controlled or it's not operating from a place of, you know, function and you just needing to be motivated to get something done. If it's at a point where it is impacting your life in a negative way, that can really be a cause for concern. So just wanted to share some statistics too, because I think those are really helpful. At least 25% of people have experienced at least one type of anxiety. And this statistic comes from a national comorbidity study. About 30% of women are more likely to experience anxiety compared to about 19% of men. And the likelihood of experiencing anxiety goes up the lower a person's socioeconomic class is. So with that, I'm going to dive into the different types. So panic disorder is pretty much an acute, intense feeling of impending doom. And it can feel like really intense fear. And those symptoms that I mentioned a few minutes ago very much can be part of the presentation of panic disorder. But what separates panic disorder from perhaps other types is having those physical feelings, but having an intense, almost unexplainable sense of dread. that something monumentally bad is going to happen to you. It can range from several times a day, having episodes several times a day, to having it a couple times a year. And it can last for a few minutes to a few hours. Unfortunately, women are two to three times more likely than men to experience panic disorder. And it most commonly develops in adulthood with the average presentation being about 25 years old, but it can, the onset can be at any age, really, from childhood to the elderly. With folks that have panic disorder, over 90% of them have at least one other mental health condition, and about 33% of them do struggle with depression. But there can also be... Cases of agoraphobia, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Some underlying themes that could precede the development of panic disorder is physical or emotional separation from a specific person or people in childhood or adulthood. A notable increase in work responsibilities or expectations that a person does not feel like they can meet. 
having controlling, critical, demanding, or frightening parents or caregivers, and currently or having a history of involvement in abusive relationships of a sexual or physical nature, emotional nature, or having a sense of being trapped. Also, when it comes to panic disorder, the person with the condition will actively try to avoid people, places, and situations that they believe are attached to triggering the panic episode. So the person most often has at least one month or more of concern or worry around experiencing another panic attack and oftentimes adopt maladaptive behaviors to avoid the next panic attack. But with the disorder, that's not always possible because it can come on unexpectedly, but it can also come on with specific triggers. And if the person who suffers from the condition knows what those triggers are, they will move hell and high water to make sure that they don't experience them or they don't come across them. It's not always possible, but they will definitely try their hardest. So I'm going to move on to agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is the fear, the fear of or anxiety of being in places where it might be difficult to escape. So with that, that can be very difficult for people because pretty much being out in public, folks don't always have control over what is going on around them, no matter how prepared they can be. Places like a bus or an elevator or a very crowded room where the person is not near an exit can be very anxiety inducing. Um, And it can interfere with a person's ability to interact with the outside world because they don't want to find themselves in a position where if they want to leave, they can't leave. So more specifically, I have, I have already provided some examples, but here are a few more. Agoraphobia can mean a fear of public transit, such as buses, planes, cars, trains, open spaces like parks and malls, closed spaces like elevators and theaters, being in a crowd or standing in line and having this condition in order to be diagnosable the person would have had to be dealing with it for six months or more and ultimately what it comes down to with the agoraphobia is a person's fear of not being able to get help when they need it if they need it so they would actively avoid those situations where they perceive it would be really hard or impossible to get help. Sometimes people with clinically diagnosed agoraphobia will have to go out with trusted persons like a friend or family member when it comes to being in places that are busy or crowded or if they're in a particular type of transportation vehicle that is really important. So when it comes to specific phobia, this is where like fear of spiders, fear of flying, 
fear of elevators, fear of this, fear of that. Like that's where all those types of anxiety fall under. So specific phobia is experienced by 5 to 10% of the general population. And it is defined as an excessive fear of a specific object, circumstance, or situation. And with that, there is an onset of intense anxiety, almost to the point of panic disorder, but not to that degree, when exposed to that object. So it can be flying, it could be heights, it could be rodents, animals, blood, needles, elevators, vomiting, loud sounds, what have you. Almost anything could induce an anxiety that is linked to a phobia. And a phobia sometimes is linked to a traumatic episode, whether the person remembers what happened or not. And with that, the person is going to fiercely avoid as much as possible being exposed to that trigger. Or if they cannot avoid it, they are going to endure it under extreme anxiety and dread. Oftentimes with specific phobia, even though it feels so big and monumental and is not able to be controlled oftentimes by the person, rationally, from a logical place, the fear of that thing is not commensurate with that thing. So say someone has like a fear of mice. They will do anything and everything to avoid them. But logically, it does not make much sense because mice are prey animals. They are actively looking not to get eaten or, you know, die. So they are going to, they are more scared of the adult or the bigger animal. And in this case, we're talking about people. So the mouse oftentimes is more scared and is running for safety because it sees a human. But someone who has a phobia of mice does not register that. They see the mouse and they are not able to logically think through the fact that there's a 99% chance nothing is going to happen to them. So this might not be the case with all specific phobias, but it is with a lot of them. Because the anxiety around specific phobia sometimes is feeling like we have no control, like there is no control. Um, Someone who has a fear of flying has very little control around that situation. Someone who has fear of heights and maybe works in a high rise has very little control over that situation. Someone who has a phobia around vomiting or loud sounds may feel like they have very little control in that situation. So kind of feeling powerless and helpless is part of the reason why having a phobia is a source of anxiety or can be a source of anxiety. And for it to be diagnosable, 
the person needs to be dealing with it for six months or more. So moving on to social anxiety disorder, which is also under specific phobia. Social anxiety is pretty much a fear of social situations where you fear being judged or you fear embarrassing yourself. So it is a fear of something. Um, So with that, it can fall under the category of specific phobia, but it's oftentimes kind of removed and placed in its own category. So like I said, fear of social situations where you do not want to be judged. You're afraid of embarrassing yourself around people in social situations. So environments where there are even small or large social gatherings where you have to make an oral presentation, where you're meeting new people, pretty much any setting where you're around others and you perceive a chance of saying the wrong thing or embarrassing yourself, a person with social anxiety disorder is going to strongly, strongly avoid those type of situations and settings. So just a couple of statistics. About 3 to 13% of the population struggles with this form of social anxiety disorder. Although I personally feel this number is probably a little higher um, because anxiety as with a lot of other mental health conditions are underreported because stigma is still a thing. Stigma is still an issue. And folks like myself are working as hard as they can to destigmatize mental health and conditions within mental health. But as far as numbers go, this is what I encountered. Women tend to be more impacted by social social anxiety disorder than men. Peak onset of social anxiety disorder is within adolescence slash teenage range, which makes sense because puberty, adolescence is very much a big time in a person's life where they're trying to like figure out their sense of self. Meanwhile, trying to kind of make friends and form a community and having a fear of embarrassing yourself, especially in like a school setting or with your peers can really be off-putting for you. And um, it can get to a point for some people where, or some teenagers where they don't even want to kind of engage in social settings. But onsen can vary anywhere from childhood interestingly, to mid-30s and on. Folks with social anxiety disorder can also suffer from other types of mental health conditions, other types of anxiety, um, depression. You might find that folks with social anxiety disorder engage in substance use because they might use maybe like marijuana or alcohol to kind of mitigate the anxious feeling so that they can so that they're able to be in an environment with other people and not feel so tense and wound up and there is an increased likelihood if there's a family history and usually also too as with the other ones that I talked about dealing with this for six or more months is where it would be clinically categorized as social anxiety disorder. So lastly I'm going to talk about generalized anxiety disorder. So pretty much 
Generalized anxiety disorder is when there is no particular trigger for the anxiety. It's pretty much being anxious about everything. You have a baseline anxiety on a daily basis that really does not have a focal point. You're not really able to pinpoint what is causing it. Um, This could very much be hereditary too. One definition is excessive anxiety or worry about several events, activities for most days during a six-month period at least. So because there are so many different things daily that are causing the anxiety, it's not one particular thing. Um, So ultimately, you're just living with anxiety regularly and it could be nothing that's causing it or it can be a multitude of things so you're not really able to pinpoint the one thing that is causing it it is difficult to control and along with the symptoms that I mentioned previously folks might experience muscle tension they might experience irritability They might have difficulty sleeping and fatigue can also be a symptom too. It may go without saying, but it is important to mention that someone with generalized anxiety disorder, their experience of everyday life is uh, very difficult and it can impact their ability to enjoy things. It can impact their ability to enjoy friends, enjoy family, enjoy hobbies, Um, because there's just that elevated baseline of anxiety that they can't shake. It's very common. So a lot of people experience it. And like I said, in the, at the top of the episode, stress can very much impact it. Environment can very much impact it. Family history can very much impact it as well. And women tend to be twice as likely as men to experience generalized anxiety disorder. The onset of the condition is usually late adolescence and can go as far as late adulthood, but it can also come about in folks who are older, who are elderly. There really is no cutoff point when it comes to age. Generalized anxiety disorder can very much coexist with other types that I've previously talked about. And 50 to 90% of folks with GAD are dealing with another type of psychiatric condition. The difference between generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder is that there aren't, the person does not experience panic attacks. So like, you know, The feeling of impending doom is not typically a symptom um, with generalized anxiety disorder versus panic disorder. So in terms of treatment for anxiety disorders, that varies based on a person's personal and medical history, but typically a combination of therapy and medication, depending on the degree of anxiety, is what is most recommended. Um, And there are different types of therapy for anxiety. There are various types of medication that target anxiety. So there are options out there. 
When it comes to medications specifically, there are types of meds such as benzodiazepines, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and other antidepressants that actually kind of do double duty and are also able to help with anxiety symptoms. Knowing the best trial and treatment option will ultimately depend on having an assessment done, um, a psychiatric assessment, which can only be performed by a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner such as myself. So I want to reiterate something I said on my depression episode. Even though mental health is more accepted and mainstream now, and a lot of people are more open to talking about their history, their struggles, their journey in therapy, there are still a lot of people who feel shame and disappointment in themselves for dealing with conditions like these. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but there's no shame in having a psychiatric condition. There's no shame in having a mental health disorder. There is no shame in dealing with anxiety because life can be hard. Life can be stressful. Life can feel impossible sometimes. And that can bring about anxiety. There is no shame in that. And I encourage anyone and everyone who is listening to this episode, if any of the information that I shared with you today resonated, if you feel like any of the symptoms I talked about rang a bell, or you feel like they apply to you, consider getting some help. Consider talking to someone. Um, consider the option for treatment because there are options out there and you won't be able to find out until you look and Trust me, it is worth looking because there are tools out there can, that can really help with managing anxiety, lowering your baseline anxiety, and being able to live a better daily life. So with that, I'm going to end this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening, as always. If this episode impacted you in a positive way, please subscribe on your preferred platform. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your preferred platform. Please share. Please recommend anyone who you think will benefit from this episode. Please share with them. If you want to reach out to me, please do email me at btbwpodcast at gmail.com. That's btbwpodcast at gmail.com. I am tinkering with the idea of a Q&A segment. It may not be every episode, 
But if there are folks out there who would want a little bit of personalized thoughts from me about, you know, any challenges or issues that they might want a second opinion on, I'd be happy to provide that if you are comfortable with me sharing it on an episode. So wanted to also put that out there too. I'm not sure when I will incorporate it, but I just wanted to kind of put out that announcement. If you're out there, if you're listening, if you love the content, if you would love to hear my thoughts on any personal challenges or things that you're dealing with, email me also at btbwpodcast at gmail.com or feel free to reach out to me via my social media handles in the description. And again, I want to thank you guys for listening. Be well. Talk to you guys soon. Bye.